It's good to have the kids back with us in worship. And let, my, let me extend my greeting to you as well, adults. I greet you in the name and the spirit of Jesus Christ. Good morning to you who are in this sanctuary. Good morning to you who are at home. Good morning to those of you who are longtime Black Nell attenders who are just making your way back. Good morning to you who are visitors. It's a challenge for us to figure out how to stay connected, how we fit during this season, whether you're just beginning at Black Knoll or you've been here a long time. So please be in touch and let us help you with that. That begins with just signing the Black Friendship Pad in your pew. It lets us know that you were here. This morning we will continue our study with the Gospel of Mark, Uh, Our text is chapter 6, beginning with verse 14. But I want to give you a bit of a trigger warning. Our text today contains suggestive material and violence. Believe it or not, we're in the Gospel of Mark, but Jesus is off stage for the entire scene. Instead, our cast of characters includes a weak and indecisive ruler, a girl in the prime of her youthful beauty, the girl's vengeful mother, and John, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin who kicked off the gospel of Mark with his call to repent. Let's listen again to the word of the Lord. King Herod heard about this. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod. And his dinner guest. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, her mother answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths 
and because of his dinner guest, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Perhaps you heard it on the news, too. A few weeks ago, just days shy of her 97th birthday, the Cuban screenwriter Delia Fialo, known as the mother of the telenovela, died in her home in Florida. Did any of you hear this? It kept running on NPR and showing up on my news screens. I don't know why. Fialo perfected the Latin American daytime drama with elements like illicit love affairs, amnesia, and murder. Sounds a bit like what we just read, doesn't it? At first glance, this text seems more like a soap opera than what we think of as a Bible story. But there is a reason that Mark inserts this episode between the disciples' departure for their first missionary journey and their return. Mark turns the disciples' missionary journey into a classic Markin sandwich, one story wedged into the middle of another to create a more complex fare for his reader. But why? Mark must want to teach us something about Jesus and his disciples, but what? It's come to the attention of the local authorities that a band of men is roving through the countryside, casting out demons, healing the sick, and calling people to repent. King Herod, who was not the Herod who tried to find and kill baby Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, that was Herod's father. King Herod, who was also not really a king, except perhaps in his own imagination, He was a tetrarch, more like a regional governor. King Herod heard about the activities of the disciples, and he begins to ask the question that is on everyone's lips in the Gospel of John. Who is this Jesus? Who is this, the disciples ask, when Jesus calms the wind and the waves? Who is this? Isn't this the carpenter's son? The crowd asked in Galilee. Who is this? Everyone wanted to know. Some guessed that Jesus was actually John the Baptist, the first figure in this popular reform movement. Others guessed that Jesus was Elijah. Elijah was a prophet in ancient Israel. His story is told in 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 Kings. And in the popular imagination of the time, Elijah was a helper of the needy, who was expected to return in the last days, which, interestingly, Elijah does return alongside Jesus at the Transfiguration. Others had a more vague idea. They figured that Jesus was some sort of prophet sent to Israel with a message of repentance. Who do you think Jesus is? 
Have you even wondered? Well, holed up in his palace, with every indulgence at his fingertips, Herod fears that Jesus is John, back from the grave to haunt him. And so the flashback begins. In this passage, we go with Herod, this anxious soul, down memory lane and learn just what happened when, as we read in the beginning of Mark, John was put in prison. John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the Gospel of Luke gives us a little bit better of an idea of what John's sermons must have been like. Here's an excerpt. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And if you asked, John would tell you what fruit you needed to produce. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Tax collectors, don't take any more than you are required. Soldiers, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. And it appears that John did not soften his rhetoric to those in positions of power and influence, but told Herod just as straightforwardly as he spoke to the others that it was not lawful for him to have his brother's wife. Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but Herod kind of liked keeping him around. He was puzzled by John, but enjoyed listening to him. But finally, Herod has a lavish birthday party, the sort of celebration that was known in that time for decadence and debauchery. Politicians, military commanders, every influential man in Galilee was there. And Herodias' daughter provides the entertainment for the evening. Herod was quite pleased. And in his lecherous folly, says, Ask me anything up to half my kingdom. Is this ringing bells here? It's reminiscent of the famous story of Esther, who pleases the Persian king Xerxes. But the request of these two famous biblical beauties could not be more different. Esther begs the king, grant me my life, spare my people. The girl asks Herod for the head of John the Baptist at her mother's behest. Mark interrupts the account of the disciples' successful inaugural missionary journey with a vivid warning. It won't always be so rosy. Following Jesus may lead to death. Jesus never promises his followers health, wealth, and prosperity. Sure, Jesus gives the disciples power. With the proclamation of the kingdom of God comes power, yes, power, to free people from bondage to sin, power to overcome illness, power to drive out evil spirits. Jesus lavishly hands out forgiveness. Jesus meets his opposition in whatever form it comes without fear. But Jesus never promises his followers a long and happy life. The charter of his kingdom is not a pledge of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
but the invitation, follow me. And what we have in this little interlude is a mini passion play, a preview of what lies ahead for Jesus and for those who dare to follow him. Jesus, too, will become the captive of an ambivalent political leader. Jesus, too, will be deemed righteous, but put to death to satisfy others and save face. But even so, something changed for the disciples after Jesus' death and resurrection. The men who had once abandoned Jesus at his arrest and fled in fear now remained loyal to Jesus, even in the face of their own deaths. Christian tradition has that all 12 of the apostles, except John, were martyred. And they were by no means the only ones. The book of Acts recounts the stoning of the deacon Stephen. and the next generation, we have the letter of Ignatius, bishop of Antioch, urging the church not to interfere as he faced execution. A few decades later, the martyrdom of Perpetua recounts the death of a young mother. And we could go on and on. We don't have to look to ancient history. The book Blood Letters tells the story of Lin Zhao, martyred during the Cultural Revolution in China. The film of Gods and Men recounts the death of Cistercian monks during the 1990s Algerian Civil War. Men who, like John the Baptist, were beheaded. Even this morning, men and women meet for worship in fear, knowing that the consequences could be grave. Not all Christians will be martyrs. Though during some periods of history and in some particular places, every Christian in that community risked death daily, martyrdom was never for everyone or even for most, but a particular calling, a weighty gift for some. Not all Christians will be martyrs, but all Christians, all disciples, are called to die. That's what John and these witnesses remind us, us who meet in relative safety this morning. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Discipleship means death. The Reformed tradition has a helpful way of describing our lifelong discipleship as a process of mortification and vivification. Do you know this, these words? I know some of you do. Mortification and vivification. They're hard to say. Mortification is from the same root as the word mortify, as in I'm so mortified, and the word mortuary. Mortification means putting something to death. And vivification means bringing something to life. Discipleship is the Holy Spirit-enabled process of mortification, putting to death the old self, and vivification, bringing to life or being given a new self. Following Jesus involves conflict, a conflict between the old and the new. 
our own untutored impulses, what we think, what we want, what we feel, what we do, they don't naturally lead us in the way of Christ, do they? Think about this bizarre story and the negative examples that we have here. Lust, revenge, regard for reputation above all else. The gospel story suggests that the temptations that are writ large here in Herod were still alive and well in the disciples, even as they journeyed with Jesus to Jerusalem. Following Jesus doesn't make them, or us, instantly an angel who no longer feels desire or rage in your body. Following Jesus doesn't mean you are free from temptation to elicit pleasure or free from the desire to tell someone off or worse or free from the inclination to throw someone else under the bus to save face. Following Jesus, saying yes to him, doesn't free you from this kind of internal or ethical conflict. But it does mean this, that sin is no longer your only option. Jesus opens to us a new and otherwise unknown way to live. Jesus is not a ghost who returns from the grave to haunt us from our mistakes, as Herod believed. Jesus is God, God who himself died, God who gave his life and limb and reputation and was raised to life again. God who died for us, who did so to awaken us, us who were dead men walking, and bring us back to real life. Because the spirit of Jesus is at work within us, our way in this world is dotted with runaway truck ramps, where we are otherwise hurtling headlong to our own destruction, we find a new way to turn. Where lust and grudges and pride still spring up, we find mysteriously that a new strain blossoms alongside them. Forgiveness and love. Where is the conflict for you today? Where are you invited to give up the struggle and die and to receive what the Lord would give you that's new? I realize that to us who live in a therapeutic age, there's a mistrust of talk like putting to death the old self. It sounds too critical, too judgmental of one's own self. I'm thankful for many of the tools that come with a therapeutic age, not least therapy, but I see our anxieties are still with us. And I, I wonder about the way to joy. I do think Jesus was on to something when he said, if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. G.K. Chesterton was an Anglican turned Catholic in the UK in the early 20th century. He wrote a biography of St. Francis of Assisi, famous 14th century saint. And in his biography of Francis, Chesterton says this, St. Francis turned martyrdom into a way of life. 
St. Francis turned martyrdom into a way of life. For the sake of Christ, he learned to die daily to the gods, ego, pleasure, power, success that threatened to dominate him. What would happen in our modern American soap opera? What plot twist would occur if the church plays its role, not of a jilted lover with a martyr complex, but as a people who have learned to make martyrdom their way of life? Let's pray together. Lord, we are humbled by the men and women throughout the ages who have loved you more than life itself. We thank you for their witness this morning. And we pray by your Holy Spirit, would you sensitize us to the conflict in our own lives and lead us in the way everlasting? We make this request that seems bold, foolish, uh, because of who we know Jesus to be. We pray in his name. Amen.